On March 26, 2015, the Ash Center hosted a seminar titled, How Data is Helping Us Understand Voting Rights After Shelby County. The panelists included Stephen Ansel Bahere, Professor of Government at Harvard University, Nate Cohn, Politics and Policy Writer for the New York Times, and Bernard Fraga, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science at Indiana University. The seminar was moderated by Maya Sen, Ash Center faculty affiliate and HKS Assistant Professor of Public Policy. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. So thank you, Marty, and hopefully you can hear me okay. So I just want to start off, before I introduce the three people sitting to my left, I just want to talk a little bit about the Voting Rights Act and introduce the topic. So um, according to the Department of Justice, the Voting Rights Act, which is also known as the VRA, was enacted by Congress in 1965 and signed into law by Lyndon Johnson in August of that year. So we're celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. Uh, pursuant to the VRA, the Attorney General undertakes investigations and litigation throughout the United States and its territories, conducts administrative reviews of changes in voting practices and procedures, and monitors elections. The VRA has been amended on numerous occasions, with the most recent major amendment being the Voting Rights Act Reauthorization and Amendments Act of 2006, which actually was very much a bipartisan reauthorization. So what we are going to talk about today uh, involves a host of questions about the Voting Rights Act and about voting rights more generally. So how effective has the Voting Rights Act actually been? Well, I'll give you some facts and then we're going to turn it over to our panelists, but according to the Supreme Court's own analysis in Shelby County versus Holder, um, only 6% of otherwise eligible African Americans in Mississippi were actually voting in elections prior to the Voting Rights Act. Let me repeat that, 6% of otherwise eligible African Americans. After the Voting Rights Act, this number increased to around 76%. Um, in Alabama, around 19% of African Americans who were eligible to vote were voting before the Voting Rights Act. Afterwards, about 73% were. In Georgia, 27% before the Voting Rights Act. After the Voting Rights Act, 64%. These are from 2004, these numbers, right? So significant increases in the number and share of African-Americans voting after the Voting Rights Act. Now, one thing to note, and just from this quick introduction, one thing to note is that Voting Rights Act questions tend to be data heavy. We need data, we need information to think about Voting Rights and Voting Rights Act issues. In fact, the Supreme Court extensively relied on data analysis in striking down portions of the Voting Rights Act in 2013's Shelby County opinion. Um, and data has become essential to the way we think about voting rights, um, specifically becoming central to experts who consider the Voting Rights Act's effectiveness and how policymakers actually consider whether and to what extent it is still necessary. And all of these questions turn on data collection and analysis. So ultimately, data help us think about the following questions, and, and this is sort of the questions that I emailed the three of you before. Um, what are the pressing challenges and problems currently facing the voting rights landscape? What are we to make of the Supreme Court's recent rulings, and are they empirically sound given what we know about data analysis? Um, ultimately, what data do we need and what questions do we still need an answer for? And what can be done to further protect voting rights acts, voting rights acts? Further, uh, further protect voting rights, and how can data help us in that regard? 
So those are some of the questions that I want to consider over the next hour, hour and 20 minutes. And um, before I actually turn it over to our panelists, I do want to provide a brief introduction for them. So uh, the first person that I want to introduce is actually sitting in the middle, and that's Nate Cohn. Um, Nate Cohn is a journalist who covers elections, polling, and demographics for the Upshot blog at the New York Times. Many of you might be familiar with him and his work. It's terrific. Um, the Upshot blog uses quantitative data to explore politics and policy very broadly. Uh, previously, Nate was a staff writer for the New Republic, and before entering journalism, he was a research assistant and a Scoville fellow at the Stimson Center. Um, the publication, I googled Nate before he showed up, and the publication Capital has called him a precocious number cruncher and polling whiz who has emerged as one of the new face of elections analysts for the paper of record, as well as one of the latest players in a growing brood of wonksters who've brought some new fire to the nerd media genre. And so we're very excited to have him here. Um, to my immediate left is Steven Solbaher, who might be familiar to a lot of you from the Gov Department here at Harvard. Um, Steve is an expert in public opinion and elections and has published extensively, very extensively, on elections, mass media, representation, political, political economy, and public opinion. He is the author of four books and was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2007. He is a member of the Board of Overseers of the American National Election Study. He consults for CBS News on election night, which is very exciting. Um, he's the principal investigator of the Cooperative Congressional Election Survey, which is a very important data set for us who work in this area. Um, and Steve has also worked extensively as an expert witness in Voting Rights Act cases all across the United States. So we're very happy to have him here as well. And then last but not least, uh, my former colleague Bernard Fraga. Uh, Bernard is currently an assistant professor at Indiana University, and his research and teaching examines American electoral politics, race and ethnic politics, and political behavior. Uh, Bernard studies how group identities and electoral contexts uh, impact individual political behavior, and he spe specifically examines the important role that majority minor minority districts play in shaping voters' behavior. Uh, Bernard's methodology, I should add, also tends toward the statistical analysis of large N observational data sets. Uh, specifically, he's looked a lot at voter registration records and election results, and his research has appeared in the top journals in our discipline. It's very impressive. Um, before I ask the first question of the panelists, I should note that there are a number of you in the audience that I, I want to recognize as also being experts in this area. And in fact, tomorrow we're going to spend the day kind of going over research and um, doing the things that us academics like to do. But we have a number of experts in the room on voting rights and Voting Rights Act related issues. So a couple of them are Matt Blackwell from the Gov Department. Matt, if you could wave. Matt's here. Uh, Joey Chen from the University of Michigan is over here. He's an expert on redistricting. Uh, Chris Umsdorf, who's here from UC Davis Law School. Um, Doug Spencer, who's actually sitting next to him uh, from the University of Connecticut Law School. I saw Ariel White come in. Ariel. Ariel is an expert on experimental methods and is doing some really interesting work on incarceration. Uh, Michael Morris is here. Michael. He's also in the Gov Department, is doing some really interesting work. And Maya came in. Tell me how you pronounce your last name. Komisarczyk. Maya Komisarczyk is here from the Gov Department as well, and she's doing some really interesting work also on Voting Rights Act related issues. And I invite everyone in the audience, those participants, to stick around afterwards. We're going to be doing a public reception and a cocktail uh, hour so you can actually interact a little bit more with some of these terrific data scholars. Okay, so that's my introduction. And now I want to turn it over mostly to the panelists and also toward the end open it up for questions. But I actually want to start with a very, very broad question to get us some contextual 
information and background on what we're talking about here. And I actually want to start with Bernard. And I was hoping, Bernard, that you could tell us a little bit about the different sections of the Voting Rights Act and specifically what they do. So I'll turn it over to Bernard. Sure. So first of all, Maya, thank you for inviting me to this um, talk. And I'm very happy to be back here at, at Harvard. I had a wonderful time here in graduate school. And Indiana is great, too, but it's nice to be back in Boston. Uh, if the snow was gone, that would be even nicer, but you know, it's OK. So the Voting Rights Act, uh, divided into sections, right? And the Supreme Court in Shelby v. Holder, the case that Maya was discussing, struck down a specific section. But first, talk about section two. Right? Section two is an important part of the Voting Rights Act, dealing with basically prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, color. Uh, later on, amended to also prohibit discrimination on the basis of language, these other functions. but is seen, I think, mostly in a legal kind of a setting as a mechanism for when there's been a wrong that's been done, people can bring a suit on the basis of Section 2 and then maybe fix a problem that's occurred. Right? That's kind of a, a lay way of thinking about it. Uh, section 3 has to do a little bit with places that could get some special scrutiny, but the court was especially interested in a portion of the act, Section 4, which outlined that certain areas in the country, especially areas in the South, they're on expanded areas in the West, and even the state of Alaska. These areas that had historically low rates of voter registration and voter turnout, and were using tests or devices, things like literacy tests, for example, to prohibit individuals from voting, that those areas were going to be subject to special scrutiny, a special kind of observation, a special kind of monitoring, where any change that they made in elections, they were going to have to be kind of pre-cleared. Now, the pre-clearance provisions were actually in Section 5 of the Act. People say Section 5 is no longer operational after Shelby v. Holder. But Section 4, from a data perspective, is very interesting. That's the part that said if you historically had low rates of turnout or registration, you're going to get monitored. You're going to have to get all your changes kind of cleared in advance, right? And the court said that was going to be an issue. There's going to be a problem to rely on historical data on this older data because as Justice Roberts put it, things have changed in the South. Things are different now. So Section 5 actually set up, here's the kind of steps you have to go through. But Section 4, a data-driven kind of section, said here are the areas that get this special kind of scrutiny. So we're going to talk a lot about Section 4 a little bit later. But Bernard, I want to actually just ask you a very, very broad question here, which is um, could you tell us a little bit about, historically speaking, the Voting Rights Act's effectiveness? Um, and how effective has it been, historically speaking? I gave some quick facts at the beginning, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. I mean, I think you outlined the you know, tremendous growth that we saw in African-American uh, voter registration and voter turnout pretty quickly after the act. We're talking five or six years after implementation of the act, right? 1971, those statistics I believe that you had, uh, were from just five years after the, the Voting Rights Act being passed. Huge increases in African-American turnout and registration. But later on and through subsequent amendments and court rulings, the Voting Rights Act kind of shifted a little bit to dealing with cases of vote dilution, cases of situations where it wasn't about prohibiting people from voting, but prohibiting people from casting an effective ballot from the vote mattering. And I think that's where you start to see kind of this other side, the second generation kind of cases and second generation successes, successes like dramatic increases in black office holding, and later Latino office holding as well. Right? The creation of districts where minority groups have influence over election outcomes. So we've seen a huge increase in office holding at the federal level, state level, and even local level, thanks to the Voting Rights Act and its application in terms of preventing vote dilution, the Voting Rights Act power in terms of saying that you can not only cast a ballot, but that ballot can actually have an impact on outcomes. 
So I think that we have to go beyond a little bit, sometimes at least, go beyond just turn on registration and start thinking about who's getting elected, who's getting represented, who has influence in elections. So I want to turn I want to turn to Steve for for a moment, and I want to talk a little bit more about Section Four. So Section Four was um, something that was actually overturned in part in the Shelby County ruling. So Steve, could you tell us a little bit about what Justice Roberts did in that opinion and why data was so important to that ruling? So the Section Five uh, was based on a formula. And the formula was if your turnout was, if your registration was below 50% and your turnout was below 50%, then you triggered and were knocked into Section 5. And so one of the unintended effects, uh, for example, of that trigger was that um, uh, three boroughs in New York City became covered. A um, couple towns in New Hampshire became covered, Five, four counties in uh, Florida became covered, a couple counties in, in California. Kind of unintended, not, not a bad consequence, it, it happened. Um, the act explicitly listed uh, a bunch of states that had, as Bernard mentioned, this historical circumstance. And what Roberts is questioning is whether the historical circumstance is still relevant. And some of the facts that Roberts cited uh, uh, from the bench and in the opinion were um, that the turnout rates and um, registration rates in Massachusetts of minorities are lower than in Mississippi. So is it still relevant if a state that is not covered, or is it, and also is it still equitable? Um, a state that's not covered, Massachusetts, has you know, lower participation rates by those standards. Um, than a state that is covered, and is it fair to that state? And this has come up in other contexts, the voter ID case. Indiana gets different treatment. It has to be a Section 2 case than Texas, which has to be a Section 5 case. And part of what's going on, and there are some very big things that are going on underneath these very small issues. The very big thing, I think, is a federalism question, and there is the, the court's asserting kind of a new standard, and everybody's like, what in the world is this? And the new standard is that somehow the states need to be treated equitably, not just the people. It wasn't even a statement of the people in the states need to be treated equitably. The states need to be treated equi equitably because they have some standing because the original constitution is a compact among these states and they're not being treated equally. So that's one very important thing. The other interesting and important thing that, that the court did was what it didn't do, which is I think going into that, the Shelby County case, a lot of, there was a lot of speculation that they were going to actually strike down Section 5, which is the authority of the federal government to, to pre-clear, to, to have some sort of pre-approval for the states that are covered under Section 4. Section 4 is the formula, Section 5 is the power. Um, and uh, it was thought that they were going to strike that down. There's a previous case from 1967, 65, South Carolina v. Katzenbach, that, established, that said that the federal government actually has that authority. It's a big question whether they do. You read the Constitution, it's like, hmm, the states have the, the, the power to set the time, place, and manner of elections. Do they really, does the federal government really have the power to go in and do this? And South Carolina v. Katzenbach said that they did, and there was a lot of speculation that the Roberts Court was going to say, no, they don't. So I think Section 5 is still hanging out there. It can still get taken out, um, which would be a question about the, the power of the federal government. And I think there are big... Uh, federalism questions behind all of this litigation. So let me ask. Let me ask Steve a follow-up question on this. So, talking about 
Roberts's ruling regarding section four, right? So this is the coverage formula and the data and, and sort of the analysis that he did in the opinion. Um, do you think that it was empirically sound, what he did and his reasoning? And I'm gonna ask you guys to respond to Steve, so. Um, yeah, I think if you look at the current, he looked at the current population survey, among other things, and said, look, the, there are these disparities. And there's questions about whether the current population survey should be relied on, but you know, the Department of Justice relies on the current population survey as well as the American Community Survey, produced by the census, very high quality, very high standards, um, to implement the Voting Rights Act. All the preclearance decisions are made using that and other information. So this, this is the data that DOJ uses. So Roberts uses the same data and says, look, this isn't equitable. Why, why isn't the coverage formula right? And I think the mistake was not, it's not a problem of the, Roberts isn't making a mistake. Congress made the mistake in 2006. There was a nice volume that Russell Sage put out uh, on the Voting Rights Act trying to, a bunch of academics trying to push Congress at the time to make a, a smarter decision. It took a while for the volume to come out. The volume actually came out after Congress had already acted. <laughs> but you know, that was 98 to zero in the Senate. To, to, to re-up the Voting Rights Act. And it was a political deal between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats wanted it to satisfy their minority base. The Republicans wanted it because they saw that they got a political advantage in redistricting um, from the way the, Demo the Voting Rights Act is implemented. We can talk more about that. But there was this, bad, from Roberts's perspective, a bad deal in Congress. And I think that they also were mindful of that. Um, let me just put one a little tiny aside. So just my observation, having been in a dozen cases over the last four years, um, there's, a, there's a piece of political science that's absent in these cases that's really important, and it's part of the discipline that's kind of underdeveloped, and it is um, people who study uh, the internal operations of legislatures and understand legislative intent. Most of the language about voting rights has intentionality wrapped up in it. And the data analysis becomes relevant because of an, another part of civil rights litigation uh, and uh, the Arlington Heights case that allows you to bring data to address intentionality. But it's mostly about intentionality. Most of the data is being brought to bear on questions of intentionality. And you, could you tell us what that means? Hang on, we, I can come back to that. I can come back to that. But but there's another kind of data that's very powerful in these cases um, that is historical analysis. And I think the best case is the, the LA County Board of Registrar's case from the 90s and Morgan Kowser was the expert. And Morgan went and interviewed everybody and, all these, all, and went through the historical record of the County Board of Supervisors and found that like, they were intentionally, like very blatantly saying things on the public record they were discriminatory against Hispanics and blacks and, and con composing districts. And that was the data, historical data, that determined the, that case. And there have been, I don't, don't want to get into details of specific cases, but there have been a number of cases where like the Department of Justice is looking for expertise and it's just not there in the discipline right now. So there's a piece of the discipline we're doing okay on providing data services. We could do better, but we're doing pretty badly on these questions of intentionality, um, and it's a big one. 
That's that's actually a very fascinating topic, but I want to stick to Shelby County and the opinion for a second. And I want to ask Bernard and also Nate. So Bernard, I'll start with you. Um, what did you think about the empirical reasoning that Roberts used in the opinion? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, relying on the current population survey, which is, you know, what many government institutions do. I mean, it's a very important survey. It's a large survey, and it's kind of the best tool that we have, at least the best tool provided by the government, it seems pretty reliable for certain things, right? It basically measures voter turnout. It doesn't measure who you vote for, it just measures voter turnout. Uh, you know, in the South, when you register to vote, not in all the South, but in a few states of the South, uh, important states in the South that are covered by, or were covered under the Section 4 formula, when you register to vote, they ask you what your race or ethnicity is, right? And some states do this differently. But in the North, you don't, you don't do that. When you register to vote in Massachusetts or Indiana, People don't ask you what race you are. So voter turnout is actually public, but race in the, the states that are in the North or in the West is not public. So in the South, you have some public data on this. Otherwise, you have to rely on a survey. It's kind of the best we have. And the point is, is it good enough? Is it good enough to get at, for example, dynamics of turnout within states? Is it good enough to see where there's problem counties in addition to just where there's problem states? I don't think that's where the issue really stems from. It's one thing to say turnout or registration is lower in Massachusetts versus Mississippi, but what about the heavily black areas of Mississippi? What about in urban areas of Massachusetts? We don't really know that much about dynamics of turnout by race in these areas because the data just doesn't exist, at least the data that the government's relying on. Let me ask a quick follow-up question on this. So what data do we have? And specifically, I, I, I think people in the audience would really welcome an explanation of the difference between voter turnout data which we maybe have more of, and, and also actually who people actually vote for, right? Because we might think that African Americans might be voting systematically for different candidates, and that would actually be very important. We'd want those opinions to be expressed. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I think that would be helpful for, for some of us in the audience who are not voting rights experts. Sure. So I'll, I'll say it briefly, because I know Nate wants to jump in as well, but uh, when you vote, right, it's public record, right? When you register to vote, that's also public, right? You can go. Now it's electronic and these kind of things, but theoretically you could go to like the county courthouse or the county registrar and get a listing of people who are registered to vote, their name, their address, date of birth, these other scary kind of things. We talk about big data and privacy. I mean, this exists you know, just by participating in our electoral process. And when you turn out to vote, that's usually recorded as well. When you go into the polling place, they mark off your name so you don't vote twice, let's say. It's an electronic poll book sometimes. Now, who you vote for is secret. You go into the little booth, you pull the curtain or whatever, and no one can figure that out. You cast a ballot, it doesn't have your name on it, doesn't have your voter registration number on it, your social security number, anything like that. So the turnout data, right, can be public if you can acquire it. Sometimes it's difficult to do, right? It's not in a consistent format. Records aren't always the best. Who you vote for, though, is completely secret in that sense. So we have to rely on aggregate data, neighborhood level data, let's say, precinct level data. We can see the dynamics, but we can't really match it up quite as well with who turned out to vote. So, Nate, I will ask you the same question I've asked these two. So tell me what you think about the ruling in Shelby County. And also, I know that you've done some thinking about sort of the status and the, the, the lay of the land before Shelby County with regard to voting rights kind of issues. So your thoughts on that would be very welcome, I think. Um, I think it's worth distinguishing Roberts's legal reasoning from his empirical reasoning. And if you think his legal reasoning is right. I think his empirical reasoning supports it. For his case to be 
to hold, all he needs to do is to show that the formula based on 1965 no longer matches up with the way things are. I think that's basically indisputable. And the, and the specifics of his use of the current population survey, I, I think that the current population survey is a deeply flawed survey for the purposes of measuring voter turnout. It is what the government uses. But you know, in the example of Mississippi versus Massachusetts, it's quite easy to show that, in fact, that's wrong, that turnout in Massachusetts was higher than Mississippi. And the reason why that's possible is because the current population survey just asks you, who did, did you vote in this election? And then they weight the data like a typical survey. And it turns out that the answer that the current population survey reports for Mississippi is, I think, 22 or 23% higher than the actual reported vote in the end. So if Roberts believes that turnout was that high in Mississippi, then maybe the Voting Rights Act wasn't doing its job because a full fourth of the vote apparently wasn't tabulated in the end. Um, and this is something that is true in across, across uh, the states with a large non-white population. Uh, in 13 of the 14 states with, a pop, with an electorate that was more than 90% white, according, according to the current population survey, the estimated turnout in the CPS was within 3% of the outcome. In, the, in, in nine of the 12 states, though, where the electorate was less than 70% white, there was at least a 3% discrepancy. And in Mississippi, it was 22%. So I think there's a case that, for whatever reason, the CPS is systematically overestimating non-white turnout. And in a state like Mississippi, which has the largest black population in the country, you compare it to Massachusetts, which is far whiter. And suddenly, Mississippi looks like it has better voter turnout when, in fact, it does not. Um, in terms of you know, the lay of the land before Shelby, I. You know, Shelby is obviously extremely significant. Pre-clearance in these states is extremely significant. But I think it is also worth reflecting in a somewhat ironic way on the extent to which the Chief Justice is sort of right, that things have changed a lot, and that the states that the jurisdictions that were subject to pre-clearance doesn't really align with uh, a lot of the challenges in voting rights today. Um, part of the reason for that is that the demographics of the country have changed a lot. In 1960, the states that were not subject to preclearance were 90% white. Today, those same states are 64% white. Massachusetts was 97% white in 1960 census. It is 76% white, or 74% white now. Um, and what that's done is it's totally reshaped the incentives for uh, passing legislation that has a disparate impact on racial minorities because Obviously, non-white voters are overwhelmingly supporting Democratic candidates. There are also secular trends towards higher non-white turnout, particularly among black voters. And so in places like Michigan or Wisconsin, which, is, which historically um, you would not think is being a front line in, uh, in a voting, voting rights fight, now that's actually a central battle um, because you have Republicans relying almost exclusively on white voters, and they see um, you know, different voter suppression efforts as a way to sort of stem the tide of demographic change. And even before Shelby, the Voting Rights Act was not configured to stop that. Section 2 has mainly dealt with dilution cases. There's not very much in the way of litigation in these sort of vote denial cases where they're rolling back early voting or they're adding voter ID laws. And while Section 5 um, has a pretty, will sort of accept a disparate impact argument for why um, something might violate the Voting Rights Act, you have to show intent under Section 2. And it turns out that the court doesn't care very much about political intent, which we can see in the context of partisan gerrymandering, right? And so 
you know, we have the Republicans in many states passing legislation that has a disparate impact on non-white voters for political reasons um, that traditionally the Supreme Court doesn't care very much about. Yes, uh, from the audience, Chris. So, so just one clarification, section two in its current form, which was adopted in 1982, was expressly intended by Congress. Sorry, section two in its current form, which was adopted in 1982, was intended by Congress to relax the constitutional requirement of showing discriminatory intent, but there is ongoing dispute in the lower courts as to how exactly it relaxes that constitutional requirement. But it's, it's, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Section 2 cases require the conventional or the traditional showing of discriminatory intent that you would need to make if you were bringing an equal protection race discrimination claim under the 14th Amendment. That's true. And it lays out, the Senate lays out criteria that help establish um, when a law might be problematic. And, but a lot of those criteria don't apply well to these vote denial cases, like the existence of racial polarization is very important for a vote denial case. But in a state like Wisconsin, where 48% of the white vote went to the president, racial polarization isn't, isn't close to being present. Actually, so on the topic of racial polarization, um, this might be an interesting question to ask Steve. So you've done some work on racial polarization and the way that it varies across the southern United States. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what racial polarization is, why it might be important, and what you found with regards to your analyses. Um, okay, so polarization comes up in section two cases. Uh, the um, case Thornburg versus Jingles, 1986, sort of sets the standard for how to approach these cases, um, and all the all the experts uh, follow uh, pretty much um, that and subsequent cases on how to assess intent using data. So intent can be assessed using a whole set of pieces of information, historical context, um, uh, you know, documentary evidence like you know, uh, legislative proceedings, and statistical evidence. So one of the things to show is that there's a disparate effect, and that disparate effect can have be evidence of intentionality, uh, and that's the reference to the Arlington Heights uh, criteria that I made. So Polarization um, really proceeds in three steps. They're called three jingles factors. The first one is to, to establish that minorities vote cohesively as a group. So do 90% of blacks vote for the same candidates across a variety of elections? Um, then you have to show that whites vote cohesively. Do whites vote for the same candidates uh, across a, a large variety of elections? And then polarization is, are the majority of whites a large majority of whites opposed to blacks consistently across a large number of elections. That would be racial polarization. Now, why it's relevant is very complicated. Do you, which direction do you want me to go in? There's some really interesting questions, I think. Um, but it might put everyone else asleep. Well, I think you have very interesting results with some of the work that you've done with uh, Priscilla and Stewart in your piece in the Harvard oh, okay, Law Review, right. which I think really speaks to some of the issues that we're talking about here. All right. Um, Just a suggestion. Okay. So um, uh, you know, one, one of the questions is, um, so it comes up in different contexts, but one of, the, one of the questions is whether or not there's variation in polarization across, um, cons across areas and whether or not polarization might be factored in as a new criterion for 
kind of reconstructing or rethinking Section 5 in the, or Section 4 in the coverage formula? Um, and would you put Wisconsin under, uh, under that? Would you put Nevada under that? Like, and you could go through and say, use polarization as that standard. And when we looked around the country, every state, state by state, in various elections, um, we, and especially the 2008 election and the 2012 election, we found that the coverage formula using polarization as that lens, which is the Section 2 criterion, and would, is about right. There were a couple states like Tennessee and Arkansas you should have put under, you'd put under coverage by that uh, thinking. In so some these would states, be states with high racial polarization. High racial polarization. Um, now, why racial polarization is interesting is if you were going through the process of drawing districts that you, where you could draw a district that a minority could win, right, you'd be very cognizant of how the different groups are voting. So if the blacks are opposed to the whites and, say, three-quarters of the state in a state like South Carolina are white, then it'd be really hard if you just drew colorblind districts for in our districts, you know, where the blacks were equally mixed, if the blacks were a quarter of every district, it'd be really hard for them to elect a candidate that they wanted, right? So that polarization analysis tells you, oh, this is an area where I should be attuned to whether or not we should see whether something was going on and, and take a really close look, and maybe even require, and this would be section two, require that they should create a majority-minority district in that state, right? So. Section 2 and Section 5, you could think of working hand in hand. Unfortunately, they kind of are at loggerheads. There's a really brilliant article by uh, Rick Pildes. Um, I don't remember the year it was, but uh, it, it was basically, it, the title tells it all. Is the voting rights now at war with itself? Right? And it's over this question of what do you do about the districts where there's gray area? What if the polarization isn't so great? What if 60% of the whites vote one way against? the blacks? What if 51%? There are some experts who will get up in court and say 51% of the whites voted for the Republican candidate. This is racially polarized. Is that racial? Is that what we mean? Would that prevent the creation of districts that minorities actually would, would do better in? Maybe you could create enough minority districts or more minority districts. At what point do you quit? There's all these questions now in the middle about where we're going to go. And I think we got a signal yesterday from the Alabama case mm -hmm. that the court might be willing to go in a very interesting direction. And this is really just computational stuff. This is you know, sitting down and thinking through the formulas. And it's you know, basic algebra, like how many people do we have in this place? What are the voting patterns? Multiply the people by the voting pattern to calculate whether or not you could create a district in which minorities have the ability to elect their preferred candidates. Now, the important language here is not that minorities are the majority of the district. It's that minorities are, have the ability to elect their preferred candidates. So this question that both of you raised, or the standard that both of you raised, which is who do they prefer, is really important, right? Let me actually get Bernard into this and then Nate. Um, so Bernard, some of your research actually explicitly deals with uh, majority-minority districts and the importance of that in terms of uh, cultivating or fostering minority voter turnout. So could you speak to the importance of the Voting Rights Act uh, with regard to those issues, how that has changed over time, and uh, kind of where you see things going? Sure, so it, it's kind of an interesting, maybe even like a historical kind of uh, conjunction or union between kind of what we're seeing now, which is that most voting rights cases are dealing with issues of vote dilution, 
dealing with issues of making sure minority groups can elect or at least have the opportunity to elect candidates that they're choosing, right? And these kind of historical patterns that we're dealing with, well, where is minority turnout higher? Where is it lower, right? Where is registration higher? Where is, where is it lower? What I've found is that in the districts that were oftentimes created or at least have been maintained in order to ensure that minorities have the opportunity to elect candidates of their choosing, right? That's also where we see very high or at least higher minority turnout than non-Hispanic white turnout, right? So one could say that some of the success in terms of increasing the rate of minority turnout, especially recently, in some cases minority turnout exceeding white turnout is because we've created areas where minorities have the opportunity to elect candidates of their choosing, which makes sense. Why would you participate if every single time you're going to lose, you're not able to get the candidate of your choosing? Why would representatives pay attention to you if they said, small population, we don't need your vote, why would we mobilize that group, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the interesting kind of factor here is that some of the efforts that have been kind of put in place in order to ensure minorities can elect candidates of their choosing might also have this kind of secondary effect of boosting minority turnout and in the context of Shelby, interestingly enough, might have the secondary effect of making it look like turnout is high in places in the South only because there's places in the South where because of the Voting Rights Act and its continuing relevance, we've created places where basically minorities are empowered and are going to turn out high rates. You get rid of those areas, minority turnout might drop again. Nate, I think you wanted to get in on this. Uh, I, I just wanted to add something that, you know, I, it's well known to, to a lot of us, but maybe not so much more broadly, which is that the extent of racial polarization in the South is, has become truly extraordinary. In states like Mississippi and Alabama, you know, the, when we talk about whites versus blacks, I mean, the president probably got 10% of the white vote in Mississippi, got maybe like 11 or 12 in Alabama. And throughout the broadly defined Deep South from West Texas to South Carolina, it was including Georgia, you know, including all of Texas with a place like Austin in the middle of it, despite that, we're probably, probably talking 17 or 18% of the white vote. Um, it's, yeah. So on, on this question of um, racial polarization, also speaking no, I to- I just want a little tiny please, footnote on that, which is, so the data that Nate's referencing is, that's consistent between the aggregate analyses and also the exit polls. So it shows up the same. It's not like a function of what data analysis you did. Any it, way you look at it, you, you get the same answer. And going from, 2004 to 2008 to 2012, it's like striking that there's a big Obama effect. So I went back to 80 last night for fun, which Carter is a Southern Democrat, and it is just extraordinary. 80 was not fun, I'm sorry. Okay, well, I, I don't remember it, but in terms of the lack of racial polarization, it was pretty fun. So I want to ask uh, Bernard a follow-up question, actually, when we're talking about these majority-minority districts and the importance of these districts in cultivating minority voter turnout. So one of the areas of concern with regard to the Voting Rights Act is actually electing minority representatives and, and people of color to political office. So could you speak a little bit about the voting right, the VRA's effectiveness in this regard, and also how that also interplays with the ruling in Shelby County? The, a broad question about essentially the election of minority um, politically elected leaders. You know, it's interesting to talk about this given what you just heard in terms of the racial polarization story. Right? I mean, people get this number kind of wrong, but I mean, the nation's only something like, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14% African-American, and we have an African-American president. So obviously it took more than just black voters in order to get Obama elected, right? So there's polarization in certain states, but, you know, in terms of, you know, 
talking about getting minority candidates elected, we have a minority president in a country that is not majority minority yet and is certainly not majority black, right? Right. But at the level of Congress and especially the level of state legislature, right, what you tend to see is that minority candidates get elected from districts in which their ethnic group is the majority or at least the plurality. And this is also true for whites, right? Most districts in the country are majority white. Most people in Congress are also white, non-Hispanic white, right? So it kind of fits. How much of that is polarization? Well, it kind of varies in some places like in the South, for example, right? The correlation is very strong, right? Areas that don't have a very large majority, sometimes even a larger than a majority black population are not electing African-Americans, right? In other areas, for example, Indianapolis, right? District that is somewhere, I think, between like 40 and 45% African-American. Andre Carson is a representative, he's an African-American, right? And you also get districts, for example, in Tennessee and Memphis, which is a majority black district where there's a white representative, Steve Cohen, right? Now, some people would say, well, he's actually the candidate of choice of African-Americans. So you find these cases, but in general, in places where there's a very small minority population, you tend not to see minority elected. Now, this is changing, right? We see some change in this, right? So, for example, Alan West was elected in Florida, right? He's a Republican, African-American, in a district that had a very, very small black population with almost no support from African-Americans as well. So some of this has to do with party, but as we might talk about in my talk about terms of polarization, we might think that there's actually a relationship between party and race that's a little bit more nuanced than just saying, oh, well, that's a story about party. Well, stories about party are also stories about race today. So with the, before we get to the Q&A, I actually want to change the course of the conversation a little bit and make this a little bit more forward-looking. What can we expect moving forward from Shelby County and kind of in this new and unpresent, uncertain kind of future for voting rights? And I would actually start with Steve and ask him, um, in his capacity as a, a past expert witness, um, where do you see the legal landscape, uh, and current, <laughs> current expert witness? They never um, end. Where do you see the legal landscape kind of heading? And um, I guess where, where do you see kind of advocates for Voting Rights Act, uh, the, for voting rights kind of moving uh, in the wake of Shelby County? Um, so I think section two, uh, the obvious thing is section two is gonna become a lot more important. Um, in some, there's a speculation that section five was actually protecting a lot of places. That the Department of Justice pre-cleared 99 plus percent of everything. Um, once you were pre-cleared, but once the Department of Justice gave you that stamp of approval, it was impossible to win a Section 2 lawsuit. Intentionality was harder. Judges were more critical and skeptical. Section 5 pre-clearance is gone. All these states lose their umbrella. And there were a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who felt that that was the case. So if, that's, if that story is true, and I think we're going to see a lot of more testing, if that story is true, then there will be not only more Section 2 cases, but more successful Section 2 cases, if it's true. I think we're going to see more Section 2 cases over the next few years. In fact, we're seeing them right now. Um, and then there's a big question about um, Section 3 and how it's going to be employed. It really hasn't been employed very much in the past. But what you need for Section 3 is, Section 3 says, if there's a finding of discrimination, intentional discrimination against a jurisdiction, the Attorney General of the United States can sue that jurisdiction in federal court to have it brought under preclearance under Section 5. Texas has two findings of intentional discrimination against it, one in a redistricting case and one in the voter ID case. The Attorney General has sued Texas. That case is pending. So Texas might be brought back under Section 5 without any changes in law. If that happens, 
that's going to be a pretty big signal. Then there's going to be questions about what happens when Massachusetts, what happens when the city of Boston intentionally discriminates or is found to have intentionally discriminated against Chinese language speakers, which it lost that lawsuit, right? Um, you know, is the, when is the attorney general going to sue? So I think there's going to be a big question mark over the office of the U.S. attorney general about when they're going to take these suits and when they're not, and they don't have the policy yet. This was, Texas was so clear that that was, that was obvious. But I think that if that starts to happen, then we get this kind of interesting cycle where Section 2 and Section 3 and Section 5 are all kind of used uh, together. So it might actually rebuild the Voting Rights Act in a more coherent way. Rather than Section 2 and Section 5 being at odds with each other, you could see the, the Voting Rights Act being kind of reconstructed from within by the Attorney General and the courts. So, so that's uh, kind of the legal perspective. And I, I want to ask Nate, actually, from, from the perspective of many of us in the audience, what we're seeing in response to Shelby is more like uh, voter suppression measures. So things like increased number of voter ID laws that we've been reading about, cutting early voting, and things like this. And I know that you've done some uh, thinking about some of these questions. So I'm wondering if we could get your perhaps uh, sense of where, you know, What's actually happening on the ground in the wake of Shelby in regards to these voter suppression measures? Um, I think that these measures clearly have the desperate impact that people allege. Um, because many of these southern states have race on their voter files, the list of every registered voter, um, we can make some pretty concrete statements about the racial composition of people that voted on the, day, on the early voting days that were removed. We can say confidently, um, what the racial composition is of the people in North Carolina who the, who the Board of Elections was unable to match with a, a driver's license um, from their Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, in, in, tw in 2014, for instance, in the um, North Carolina Senate race, which was maybe the, the marquee race of the cycle, um, there were 56,000 voters who participated that, the, uh, that did not have a state-issued voter ID in the eyes of the Board of Elections. Um, some of those people will have passports or alternative forms of identification. If I've read some of Stephen's work, it might be about a quarter of those people, but 56,000 is a big number. The race was, not, was, was narrower than that, although the Republican won. Um, those voters were 37% uh, black uh, versus 21% for the people that weren't. The party registration was 62 to 21 versus 43 to 35. Um, so if you think those votes are breaking like 70-30 or so, then you know, we're talking about half a point, seven-tenths of a point worth of margin that by implementing a, a voter ID law in North Carolina, you might be giving to the Republicans. So that's, that's a discernible impact. But it's not, you know, we're not going, I don't think we're going back to Jim Crow either. I don't think, for instance, that if you're the, the Hillary campaign in 2016, that North Carolina is off, your, off the list of states you pursue because of these measures. Okay. So actually, I think this is a great time to open it up to audience Q&A. All right. We've got about half an hour left, and I think there are some of us in the audience who are very excited to ask questions. So I, I will be the roaming uh, interviewer, so I will pass around the mic. So, Joey, you want to go ahead? <laughs> um, I, I want to ask Bernard if, uh, if you could go back to your discussion about the, the effect of the VRA on, um, on, on the fate of minority legislators, especially in the South, and, and what do you expect, you know, what, what kinds of, what, what do you tangibly expect will happen to, to uh, I, I guess, especially black legislators, but also Hispanic legislators in Texas and, and California, 
if if Shelby County um, if, if the Shelby County effect continues and and their Congress does not come back and 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 create a new preclearance formula well you know in in 2022 well we suddenly see Republican legislatures in the South eliminate the the incumbent uh, all, all of these black incumbents in in southern states what what magnitude of effect will that be both for blacks and for Hispanics I don't first I don't think we'll see that so I think that a lot of what we've seen even since what, I mean, since the 2000 really redistricting cycle in 2002, right, is that the parties have kind of figured it out. It's kind of an equilibrium now where it's like, look, you know, even some of the cases that have been brought before the court, you oftentimes, you know, it's African-American legislators in the South against, you know, a black interest group saying we want more, you know, Democrats elected versus more African-Americans. What should happen, that was Georgia v. Ashcroft in terms of influence districts. Steve alluded to this a little bit, right, this idea that, you know, is it better to have, you know, two 40% African-American districts versus like one, you know, clearly majority black district, right? Well, this substantive versus descriptive representation question, substantive being more like a party or policy question versus getting, you know, um, minorities elected to office. That's, I think, you know, something that parties have kind of like worked out some kind of agreement on. I think Republicans are now able to use the Voting Rights Act in interesting ways to ensure that they kind of, you know, keep the districts the way that they are. This is what we just saw in the Alabama case. So I'm not sure how much change there's really going to be. I think that as long as something like Section 2 is still functioning and people are still able to litigate on that, we won't see too much retrogression maybe in terms of, uh, in terms of what's going on. But I, I don't know. I could be wrong on that. Maybe the other panelists have some thoughts about it. But I think that there'll be less change than we think. It's just it's going to be more a story of can you stop things like voter ID? You know, can you stop things like other kinds of suppression measures taking away, you know, early voting, right? Is it going to be more difficult to create other kinds of districts? We'll see. I, I think you're totally right. The, all the political incentives for a Republican in the South, if you think there's racially polarized voting and the Republicans have a majority, is to create minority-majority districts that pack these, uh, that black, pack black and Democratic voters into districts that will preserve a large number of black state legislatures, but uh, ensure a very safe Republican hold on state legislatures. It's also the incentive of the NAACP. Right? The national NAACP has taken the strategy of creating these districts even when the state, lo and state NAACPs have opposed them. Yeah. Okay, I have a question for the em empirical scholars here. So the post... Um, Which one are those? <laughs> whoever wants to be. Uh, so the, the, the so-called voter suppression measures post Shelby County, voter ID, uh, lessening the days of early voting. As, if I'm reading your expert report and voter ID correctly, Steve, uh, <laughs> these you know, the, 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 our best guess is that among actual likely voters, the disparate impact on, on minorities is, is pretty tiny. It's there, but very, very tiny, right? The number of people who would actually vote if not for ID is just really small potatoes, right? And um, same thing with early voting. I mean, basically no early voting studies ever shown that early voting even increases turnout to begin with. So going from 30 days to 28 days, when we have states like Massachusetts that have zero days, it's kind of hard to call taking a few days of early voting away a voter suppression strategy. So what I'm wondering is, um, is this mostly just kind of democratic, big D democratic politics to, to create a partisan issue where none should exist? Where are the eye-popping numbers that we should be paying attention to? that anyone has seen eye-popping, like something is really dangerous to our democratic system because it affects real-life turnout in a big way. That's going to affect an election. Very provocative question directed yeah. at all three panelists. That's right. 
I think it depends on your perspective. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, like Virginia has no early voting and it's had a voter ID law for some time and, Democrat, and it's very demographically similar to North Carolina. And, you know, Democrats are just fine there. In fact, they're on the right side of 50 more often than not. Um, but, I, you know, I think, that the, I think that the numbers that we see in places like North Carolina or in Texas are, are, are fairly flashy if, if you're concerned by state governments passing legislation that seem to overwhelmingly um, affect Democratic-leaning voters. Um, I think that has effects for people's confidence in the system. Maybe that is charged up by Democrats. Um, and I think that in close elections, it matters. I mean, how much would the Clinton campaign pay for some sort of mechanism to increase their vote margin by three-fourths of a point in 2016? Things were billions of dollars. And voter ID does that for the Republicans by maybe half a point or so in a state like North Carolina. Now, maybe it's worse in North Carolina because it has a large non-white population and a large gen generational gap. But I mean, on the, I, I take the point that like a half point's a half point and doesn't seem like much. On the other hand, I mean, that's, we, have a lot, we have a lot of elections that are that close. And we have a divided country. So the other angle on this that was in the expert testimony was Barry Burden's testimony, both in Texas and in, and in uh, uh, Wisconsin, that it's not just the number, it's that there's an underlying model of participation where people are weighing costs and benefits. So there's a continuum that you're affecting the probability that somebody votes and it affects everybody. It's just we're measuring who's right, at, how many people are right at that margin right now, but it's showing that it's disproportionately affecting the probabilities of one group versus another group. So even though it might, you wouldn't, um, the question came up in the Texas ID trial as to whether or not that number is the projection or prediction about how much drop off and turnout there will be among minorities. And the answer was no from the experts because it's affecting these probability calculations. I think it's important to kind of turn the question around. So voter turnout 2012, historic election, right? Record turnout, African-American turnout 66% of people who are eligible, right? I mean, two thirds, right? One third of the population that could have voted didn't. Voter turnout in the United States is the lowest, right? Among the lowest, if not the lowest, right? And even in presidential elections, not to mention midterms where it's around 40, 45% sometimes, right? So a lot of people don't vote already. Should we be making it harder to vote? Should we be increasing the barriers to voting? Right? We have to then weigh that against, okay, how much evidence do we have that there's any sort of like fraud, for example, that necessitates voter ID? You know, how much does that really save to take away, you know, the opportunity to vote on a Sunday, like on one Sunday, right, to have, you know, a day where you can register to vote and vote on the same day? Like how much money is that really saving? Is it worth the chance? that individuals could be disenfranchised. I think that that's the other way of thinking about it. I look at what Oregon has done right now, for example, in this kind of automatically registering people to vote. That's you know, something to think about more. So we might not find much of an effect for people that are already registered, that are already voting, that already figured out the system, that have their ID, but should we be making it harder at all? Like, should we be worried about that from a more normative or theoretical kind of concern in terms of, as Nate was mentioning, the health of our democracy? Hey, Kermit Bernard. Okay, so what if, what if it goes the other, let's turn your, your turned around question on its head. Um, and then, so what if you come up with a law that actually makes it easier to vote for everybody, but it makes it much easier for some people to vote? Okay. So that would be bad, right? Potentially, right? It would no, have but this some is kind a, of what, This is a impact. liberalization of all the laws. But what if the liberalization of all the laws sort of disproportionately increased the participation of one group, made it easier for one group. 
So what if I had a restrictive law and I said, oh, I'm going to relax it. So what if, um, I don't know, internet voting was put in place and it turned out that like, well, no, 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 just across the board. And it turned out that there are sectors of the, of the population that don't have as easy access to internet as other sectors. And th this is a real thing that, you know, thinking about the future, then suddenly we've created a disproportionate burden by making it easier for everybody. So, I mean, my thought on this maybe is as follows, and then we, you know, maybe we'll take another question, but. This uh, is why you didn't like me as my, your advisor. This is why I didn't, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, no, it's a great, great advice, and I think it's an important thing to think about, right? Let's see where voter turnout is low. So we've been talking about black turnout record levels, and when we talk about voter ID, we might think about black turnout. Take Latino turnout, Asian American turnout, among citizens, right, lags double digits behind black and white turnout. Talk about youth voter turnout, right? Eligible young people voting at vastly lower rates than older people, right? When the population voting doesn't mirror the population, right, the actual eligible population even, and then eligibility is another story, right? And then we implement a measure that might further distort that, you might be kind of worried, right? I would be concerned if there were some measures that were like, okay, well, this will probably only increase turnout for people that are already turning out at a high rate. And there's some research that's interesting on that kind of dynamic. But when it's already not represented the population and then you're gonna make it worse, that's when I'm a little bit concerned. Maybe it's more of a normative kind of a perspective. I don't think that's a, a legal claim that you necessarily need to make, but it's something to think about, right? What's the impact that's going to have on our democracy, on participation, on who's getting represented, on outcomes, et cetera? Thanks. Um, so the question I had was, um, so you talked a lot about kind of court cases and, and the kind of judicial track on this, but uh, to what extent, can anyone comment on to what extent we anticipate or don't anticipate kind of legislative action to, to kind of to move the VRA forward in some way, you know, correct, you know, you know Rob, one interpretation of the Roberts decision is that it was sent back to Congress to, to, do, to fix this, right? And to what extent do we think that Congress will fix it and or just change it or just the current I mean, obviously, in the current Congress, this might not be super feasible, but kind of long term, what, what kind of legislative fixes might we see that would kind of change the, the game a little bit? I don't think Congress is going to touch this. Um, but I do think the state legislatures are going to start doing things. So Florida passed an initiative that has effectively the Voting Rights Act in it as one of its, its items. And I think we will see some states start to do things. Um, California has this already. California right? has this. So I think you're, you're going to see, I think that, I think the Voting Rights Act, a, a kind of subtle change that the Voting Rights Act had was it, it changed our expectations about what fairness is. Like we, we didn't, there wasn't even a definition of a voting right really before that. And when we poll on that, and Bernard and I have done some work on this and Nate and others, um, when we poll on this, the, there's just a broad acceptance of the concept of voting rights, of equality and things like that that really didn't exist around 1965. So I think the ethos change, that might be a hopeful sign that we're not going to like totally backslide to 1961. Um, but um, uh, my guess is there's not anything pushing Congress really to move forward. There's not a hue and cry. There, there's the, the act isn't going to expire. Um, so when in the last, uh, uh, 2006 was the last uh, amendment to the act, uh, and they said 25 years. So it's going to be there till 2031. 
better guess than any on when they might yeah. address it next. Um, so in the spirit of the title of the, t uh, the panel today about how data is helping us understand the Voting Rights Act, you know, there's a, a broad theme that uh, you know, this trend towards big data is revolutionizing how we think a lot about many intractable issues and problems. Some of Nate's writing is part of that sort of nerdy media uh, trend. I was just curious to know a little bit about whether uh, court decisions, whether we are seeing um, increased computational complexity in what courts are facing. So already in the voter ID case in Texas, you mentioned one paper that was introduced. Another paper as part of those proceedings was a kind of complicated GIS calculation of the travel burden that minorities would face in trying to go get you know, a, a, a voter ID. So I'm wondering, but on the other hand, you've also said that some of this algebra is pretty simple, and the empirical reasoning is really not that complicated, even if it may be invalid. So I'm just, do you have a sense of the landscape? Like, uh, are, as political science and as the social sciences are getting more data heavy, are they clashing and colliding with the judicial system, which does not have the capacity to deal with this? Or is it something that's being uh, assimilated well? So my sense, so most of this happens in federal district court, not in the Supreme Court. And I think the federal district courts are pretty savvy. It varies from court to court. Um, like the district court in San Antonio actually drew its own maps. So I think th one of the big changes is um, that the, it's, it's gotten a lot easier to draw maps. Um, you know, you can get on Dave's redistricting app and draw your own map, and it's got all the data in it already. Ten years ago, that was prohibitively expensive. You had to be an insider to do that. And that's improved the advocacy on both sides. Um, and it's improved the capacity of courts to draw their own maps and to take a look at things. Um, uh, and we can I'd gladly talk further about like what needs to happen, what you really need to show to make to move the needle in these courts. But um, I, I think the the amount of data, the availability of data, the openness and transparency of the data um, has made it incredibly um, uh, uh, e even or equal in these court cases to to really see what all sides are arguing. I think it's improved the litigation on both sides. So it used to be the case that if you were NAACP and you came into court, it was incredibly expensive to do an analysis. Now it's pretty cheap. You can go up on the Texas website or Florida website and download all the data you need. You can download the GIS maps. This, this, the, the, the number of people out there who can help you out has increased. You don't have to go to one of the specialist firms and pay an exorbitant rate. You don't have to to buy a, a GIS license at, at a very high price. So I think that stuff's all really changed um, the ability to litigate on both sides and, and improve things. Um, it made the conversation more coherent. Um, and um, uh, you know, Joey and Jonathan Roden came into Florida and simulated 10,000 plans, right? And the courts were scratching their heads like, what in the world's this? And, and you know they didn't know what to make of it, but next go around they will be able to know what to make of it. That's how things are going to move forward in the past, from, from where we were in the past. So stuff that they may have seemed mystifying last time is going to be standards. So things that people were experimenting with that didn't seem to go very well, that's going to be what's going to come up next. But if I just think about the last ten years, like the next ten years is going to be another leap forward in a big way. I think 
availability of data is, is critical here and, and um, having kind of open access data um, is essential, especially for plaintiffs. One thing that's interesting about Steve's comments is that that's actually, um, so it's very much the case with regard to redistricting, I think. The data is really nice for redistricting sorts of cases. And I think there is, and I think Aton's question kind of speaks to this, we still need more data. Like we sort of collectively as data scientists, as social scientists, as policymakers, there's still more data that would be awesome to have, that would be terrific for us to have in terms of answering important questions such as, you know, what degree is there, what, what, what degree of racial polarization do we actually have? Um, so I'm wondering, just to build off of this question more broadly, what, you know, in a world of unlimited resources, um, what data do you need? What data do we need to uh, kind of further promote voting rights uh, broadly, right? Because we still could use more data. So, so there's no national warehouse that's open access of all election data at the precinct level. That'd be the ideal. And though we know a fair amount about federal elections, we know almost nothing about local elections. And in fact, most of the voting rights litigation is local election stuff, not redistricting of federal stuff. It's, it's you know, somebody didn't put a language uh, on, on the ballot, or somebody moved a precinct, and you know, somebody changed a local administrative law, or somebody redistricted a county commission. So that's a lot of it, or a school district. And that's a lot of it, and it's big impact stuff for local communities, and we don't know as political scientists much about that because it's not the big sexy topic because it's not national elections. Um, and even the national elections data is, is still pretty um, inaccessible. I think there's a lot of effort put in right now and I think by the next uh, go around hopefully it's solved about putting forth more um, federal level data at the precinct level that's accessible to everybody. Um, the last time uh, for the public mapping projects of various forms, people were just scrambling the last two years to get stuff together and get it up online and get it integrated into the GIS systems. And mostly managed to do it, but there was it was more some states that were difficult. But I, th I think the local stuff, if I were to say where, where is it really weak, it's the local data. So, I mean, in an ideal world, with uh, unlimited resources, I mean, let's think a little bigger, right? I mean. Every individual, right? We already, there's public records of like whether they turn out to vote or not. Those aren't very consistent across states, so I mean, that would be like one step in the right direction. But it's gonna improve. It improved a lot after HAVA in 2002, and it's still, you know, maybe improving computerized databases of everyone. Okay, so maybe not too far in terms of saying we're not gonna be able to figure out how everyone voted individually. We're not gonna be able to see like them casting ballots. We're still gonna have a secret ballot. But even just information about people who are voting, demographic information. In the South, they list race on the registration form. If we did that nationally, then instead of Roberts relying on turnout from the CPS, a survey which has flaws, especially over-reporting, people lie about voting, they like to say they voted when they really didn't, you know, we could actually just observe with official data who voted and who didn't, based on their self-identified race or ethnicity. So, I mean, I don't think that's far from the realm of possibility because many states already do that. Now, the reasons why they do that are a little bit more complicated. It's not to protect voting rights. Originally, it was to prevent people from voting, right? You could see who some, you know, sure, you can register to vote, but you can't turn out if you were black in the South, right? And they had that record. So, I mean, I think that that's also in the realm, you know, 
something that would be reasonably feasible, things like you know, just figuring out more about the demographics of who's turning out to vote and who's not, and then we don't have to rely so much on kind of more survey evidence. We don't have to rely so much on ecological inference and these other techniques. Um, and we can do a better comparison and figure out where are the problem spots, where are the trouble areas, where are the areas with persistently low participation for minorities, and where are these areas that maybe the Voting Rights Act needs to step in on. When, when I heard this question, the first thing I thought of was all of the things that the campaigns are doing that, you know, with their not quite unlimited resources, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned at least, and I assume <laughs> you guys as well, about as close to unlimited resources as we'll ever get. And they uh, are drawing in all sorts of data and merging it with the voter file. They are taking consumer information. They are taking past residences. They are m building individual voter histories back from where they used to live. And they are coming up with a much more comprehensive understanding of the electorate than um, I have from using public voter files or from uh, anyone who's using the Catalyst voter file, which is uh, sort of like a halfway point between what a full-fledged presidential campaign might have and what you would get off of the Secretary of State's website for um, some southern state. And they also are merging this with survey data for, for modeling purposes. Um, so they can, they basically have what they call a support score, an estimate of how every person in the country will vote, um, whether it will be for Democrats or Republicans. Um, they also have very sophisticated turnout propensity scores that have accounted for your voting history, not just in the one state where they, ha where they have you now, but also where you used to live. Um, and there are also, with that same survey data that they use to measure support, you could do some things that, that I'd be, I don't know how relevant it would be legally, but I think it would be very interesting to learn. How, when do people learn about new laws? When a voter ID law is enacted, how much time does it take before we should expect um, a voter to know that the requirements have changed and then for them to remedy it? Um, how many people are deterred? just by knowing that there are, that voting has become more difficult but aren't entirely sure what the court requirements are. Um, I think, I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I have a hunch that those, those issues can be addressed with survey data and would, would be relevant in a number of sort of pressing um, legal situations in early October of an even numbered year. Thank you. Um, I guess this is a question for everyone, but recently Obama was, um, I guess, at a town hall or something, and he was he proposed that we ought to have mandatory voting. Um, so as, aside from the feasibility of such an idea, um, I'm wondering whether that would be um, a way of getting at what, um, I guess, I think Bernard was talking about, sort of n getting as close as possible to the, so that the voting population looks most like the uh, eligible population. Is that the... Is that the way of getting to, to that ideal, um, no, even though we know from research in other countries that mandatory voting does not eliminate disparities, but we do know that they reduce them considerably. So just wondering what your thoughts were on that m mandatory voting idea. I mean, I, I think it was more of a thought experiment than you know, an actual like, policy suggestion. But you know, voter registration, right? I mean, that could be made, I mean, not necessarily mandatory, but transferable across states, for example. I mean, if you think, you know, <laughs> I make this joke, like I tell my students, if you think the government's not like figured out like where you live and like can figure out when you move and this kind of stuff or advertisers and companies have figured out, they can certainly like have you, you know, give you portable voter registration, right? Send you a flyer in the mail saying, oh, we saw that you moved. Here's where your new polling place is. You don't have to vote there, 
but just make it simple on that kind of a level, right? I think that's more something, you know, we'll see what the effects are there. It seems like, you know, once you register to vote, take that step, much more likely to turn out. Now that would change if it was mandatory. A lot of studies about making it easier to register to vote, for example, motor voter registering at the DMV. You know, a lot of that says those people weren't as likely to vote, but you know, let's start there. That's a policy suggestion that could actually maybe get some traction, except that people think there's going to be some partisan impact, which there probably would be, right, of implementing that. But that, I mean, as at least in the realm of possibility, and would bring us in line with other, let's say, developed democracies or the developed world, right? Not so many. It's actually, it's not that many countries have mandatory voting. Mandatory voting or mandatory or portable registration? Or mandatory voting, even like, well, the, if you're from an English speaking, you know, if you, if you originate in England, you don't have voter ID, you don't have national ID. If you are under the Napoleonic regime, you have national ID, and it's like a historical pattern, um, and for obvious reasons. Um, I think there's a, the, the, the interesting thing to think about is what's the political deal you cut, right? Because both parties feel that they have a stake on each side of it. So what's the political deal? And this came up in 2009, and the political deal was proposed in the Senate Judiciary Committee that they, that there was an opportunity to create um, mandatory voting, actually national registration. And uh, the question is, would the Democrats accept uh, national ID, which the Republicans wanted? And they wouldn't take it. And so that was on the table, and, and Schumer wouldn't take it at the time. So um, I think the hard thing to think about is, what's the political deal? If you want a big reform like that, like mandatory voting, or um, uh, national registration, what um, deal is the administration willing to cut on these other issues? And maybe they've changed on that perspective. The other thing that's going on that's of interest is um, the, sec the secretaries of state are s starting to solve some of these issues. And they're, like they're, the Secretary of State of Kansas started this snowball process of merging all the registration systems and, and other Secretary of State that want to participate in this so that they can trace and purge people. So there are different functionalities to these systems, and it's worth thinking about, like, okay, well, what, what's the purpose of setting up a national registration system? Well, maybe you can improve purges. And does it actually improve purges? Do they have the technology to really identify people uniquely, or are they going to be falsely purging? And what's the error rate that we're going to tolerate on one side or the other? They're at, this is largely unstudied, unmodeled, um, kind of fresh territory to think about. Y'all had talked uh, earlier, um, Steve, about the about how a lot of these VRA cases are actually uh, lawsuits are, are going on at the local level rather than at the um, you know, congressional and, and state legislative levels. I'm wondering if, if you or any of y'all can just, uh, t since I, I'm just less not not really familiar at all with with these local VRA lawsuits, these these battles. What are the the most exciting battlegrounds, or what are the most controversial legal issues going on in these local? Um, you know, lawsuits in these local VRA lawsuits and how do they differ from the kinds of issues that come up in the, in the congressional and the state legislative ones? So some of them are redistricting questions, like did you draw the county supervisors districts right in California? And county supervisors in California are really powerful. That's a really powerful, powerful position or the school district properly. Um, around 1990, there were still a lot of at-large school districts and in the 1990s they started drawing districts anticipating that they might be sued. So a lot of school districts started 
going to single member districts. And so a lot of school districts don't have capacity, they don't know data, they're very amateur, and they don't have the ability to, to draw draw districts properly. So there are a lot of, you know, kind of cleaning up. Did you did you create enough minority districts? Because they just kind of haphazardly drew these districts. And so I think there's gonna be a lot of these kinds of uh, uh, targeted suits on, on the district structure in local elections. Um, then there's the language um, questions uh, that are um, largely in cities, right? And so city elections are, uh, especially when an election is not very closely watched, not a big sexy election, um, uh, mistakes are made. Right? And do you, do you, you know, when do you go after a city for dropping Chinese language ballots um, and so forth? Do they do it on purpose? Those become the question. So language areas, um, any others you think are sensitive? Um, the, the at large question. Yeah. I mean, I, the what is it? City of Pasadena, Texas, yep. not California, right? You know, just re-implemented at large districts, and the issue in some of these cases is that city councilors will support it, right? Even minority city councilors will say, well, this is going to be a better deal, and there's some, you know, reasons behind this in a city that, for example, would have like a 30 or 40 percent minority population. While they're able to elect someone even under at large, is that then okay, you know, so I, I think that we think about it as well, everyone, you know, single member districts just because of Congress and state legislatures, but these at-large elections, right, I mean, are actually, you know, an interesting kind of area that maybe if not, maybe with preclearance kind of being dropped, you know, that's certainly what was happening in Pasadena, that might be more what you're seeing, you know, a strategy that's taken, changing the electoral system completely. Matt. Oh. I was just going to say, that, and that's very different from state legislatures insofar as the incentives will be far greater for, uh, to, to, to dilute uh, non-white voters at the local level. Right. And then there's one other kind of question that's going to start to come up in a big way, and that is what happens when, as jurisdictions become majority-minority? What happens when a whole city is majority-Hispanic? What happens when Texas is majority-Hispanic? How does Section 2 apply? When that happens, yeah. the NAACP or the Hispanic group's incentive is to, to create an at-large system, right? Rather than yeah, you're right. What does the Voting Rights Act compel? Yeah. We don't know the answer to those questions. So we have time for one more question, and it's going to go to Chris. So one other big issue at the local level that hasn't been the subject of much litigation, but maybe is a kind of contemporary application of Steve's internet voting hypothetical, is the difference in turnout between local elections that are held off-cycle and local elections that are held concurrently with national elections. Yep. Much, much, much higher turnout in local elections when they're held concurrently with national elections. So if you want like one little intervention that really can change the composition of the electorate locally, it's change the timing of change the timing of your election. Yeah. I should thank the three participants, uh, Steve, Nate, and Bernard. Thank you so much for joining us. And I should also say that um, all three of them are going to stick around for the reception that follows. In fact, many of you in the audience are here Voting Rights Act experts. And there's food and drink right outside. So we're going to be sticking around for an hour. So please join us.